Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Look no further because we're here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse job listings, post your own job listings, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Constructive is looking for a senior interactive designer. This is a remote U.S. position. Posting to our job board starts at just $99, way less than many other design job boards. And for an additional fee, you can have your listing advertised here on the podcast and reach tens of thousands of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Get started with us and expand your job search or recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Now, if you've been listening for the past few weeks, really for the past few months, you've heard me talk about the 10th Collective. I'm going to keep talking about it because I still want you all to sign up for it. This is a super, super good resource. Whether you're looking for work or you're not looking for work, I know a lot of people have been affected by tech layoffs, including me. (laughs) So if you're looking to sort of have these warm introductions to companies that are looking to hire black designers, the 10th Collective is for you. It's free to join. You just have to fill out a short profile and you're all set. And like I mentioned before, you'll only be contacted by companies when they're ready to talk to you. And the best part about it from like the talent end from your end is that you can hide your profile from companies like your present employer, or you can just remain completely anonymous. The 10th Collective is meant to be a resource, whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not. It's just a really great asset to have in your back pocket for your career. It's this great initiative that myself and Omari Souza from State of Black Design came up with. And we really think it's something that is going to take off. And so we want you all to get in on the ground floor with this. So you can head over to the 10thcollective.com to join, or you can check out the link in the show notes. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Kamar Thomas, a Jamaican artist located in Toronto, Ontario. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Kamar Thomas. I am a fine art painter, primarily an artist. I'm also a professor at two colleges, Centennial College and Visual College of Art and Design. And lastly, because I have finished a manuscript, I will be an author of a book called The Artist's Creative Vision. Nice. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Thank you. When it comes out, hopefully it does come out. I hope it makes an impact. 
It will. I think every person's book makes an impact, especially for the person who wrote it. <laughs> especially for the person <laughs> who wrote it. <laughs> so book aside, like how has like the summer been going so far? Uh, the summer has been bi- busy. I've, you know, I feel essentially three roles I teach and I make and I write. And the summer is my season of making and writing. So I've had an exhibition in the summer. I've been going to museums quite a bit and I've been just polishing up the manuscript, which is a whole long process in itself. Yeah, I see on the website you've got the book here available for pre-order and everything. So we'll also make sure to put a link to it in the show notes so people can check that out. Thank you. I'm very grateful. I need it. (laughs) What was your inspiration behind it? It came from solving my own problem, which was I was a starving artist and I didn't want to be a starving artist anymore. Mm -hmm. So the book is written to, if I can, eradicate that concept, get rid of the idea And to solve that problem, it's the real issue is how does one come up with work consistently that people want to buy Mm -hmm. rather than just making and following the muse and blindly following, you know, inspiration. And I sat down and I came up with a system. And by sat down, I mean with trial and error and teaching people and (laughs) trying a few other method here and picking up things through teaching and applying them to myself. And the system is combine your interests with your biography, with art history, repeat, eventually someone will buy. Sounds pretty simple. Sounds pretty simple. Just like saving money is simple, but it's really (laughs) difficult. Just like exercise is simple, but it's hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to get more into your work as an artist, but let's talk about your work as a professor first. You mentioned teaching at two universities. You're teaching at the Visual College of Art and Design. That's in Edmonton, Alberta. And you're teaching at Centennial College, which is in Toronto, which is on, in Ontario. That's like East Coast, West Coast geographically. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you balance teaching at both of those schools? Yeah, balance is a strong word. Let's just say, what's the word? Manage. Balance (laughs) balance implies, so for a season, there is teaching, Visual College of Art and Design is online, and their classes are two to three hours long, and I fit them in the schedule where I can, and I teach at Centennial in person. I'm full-time there, and that's schedule is largely immutable. The meetings have to happen, the classes have to happen, and I have to physically be there. And so it's just a matter of systematizing and being rather ruthless with what I say yes to and being very hands-on with the planning. I spend a significant portion of time just planning, just you know, 20 minutes here and there. I think if I added it up over the week, it would be at least an hour and a half just on planning what I'm going to do with the time that I have. Well, it's good that you kind of manage both of them because it sounds like, I mean, one's online, one's in person, but then the schedules don't seem to really cross over either. So that's pretty good. Yeah. If it's one thing I've learned from teaching, it's systematize. If you repeat anything, 
figure out the best way to repeat it <laughs> rather than having to make yourself figure it out each time. Mm-hmm. So I have kind of a complicated system of things coming into my inbox to moving to uh, I gather up a place, I put them in a folder, and then once a day I go in the folder, I put those into the planner, and then the next day I get out a physical piece of paper and I write down the things from the planner and I keep it on my person so I won't have to keep checking the planner. And then somewhere on the paper on my person, I have somewhere to put the new stuff coming in. So nothing really slips through the cracks. Some things do, but for the most part, 90%, 95% do not. The same with art. A system that you can go back to, that you can rely on to produce results is mm-hmm. much better than kind of inspiration-based or client-based. It's more of if you have a method of working, you go, you consult the system, I do this, let me check art history. What do I have inspired there? Let me draw something from my biography. Go. You know, it's interesting. I didn't really realize that about teaching myself until I started teaching, which, you know, when I was in college, I would always have professors that would, they wouldn't necessarily repeat themselves. They'd always just tell you it's in the syllabus. It's like, it's in the syllabus. I put it in the syllabus. And I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Then when I started teaching, I was like, I get it because the syllabus is kind of like, your system. So you put everything in there and it's up to the student whether they read it or not. If they don't read it, it's not your fault. You put it in the syllabus. <laughs> they should have read it. Correct. It, it not only has everything, it has when everything is going to happen and it has how you expect it to happen and it has the consequences of if they don't happen. <laughs> yep. And then the students get mad when they're like, well, I didn't read the syllabus. Well, that's that's your problem. Like the syllabus is the key to the system for me. So I get it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, you've been a teacher for a while now, not just with these two colleges, but I mean, you've taught in Canada, you've taught in Jamaica, you've taught in the United States. Like, what do you learn from your students? Like, are there any sort of differences between students in different countries and stuff? Yeah, there sure are. So in Jamaica, the difference in students in Jamaica, I was teaching high school. And the difference really, well, what would have made the difference there is finances. It's money. A lot of the issues could be solved by a few dollars here and there. The main challenges I was up against was actual art materials, was the space to make the art, was the resources. And that, you know, once you have the money, those problems are solved. In the United States, I had a, I was, when I became a professor, the problem I faced the most was a problem of agency. And that I loosely define as, is this thing for me? So the students, a lot of them didn't feel like making art was, never mind it being possible, it's possible, but just for someone else. And so a lot of my teaching was geared towards having students not only believe that it's for them, but making projects that reinforce that belief. And there are very few things more encouraging than a few dollars in your bank account. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in Canada, it is the students I teach now, it is a equivalent of a community college and the students I teach are adults and they want to be professionals and they need tangible results. So the difference in Canada is their students are a little more responsible because <laughs> they're a little older. Yeah. But 
they just need the resources. They need to know when and where what's happening. So a lot of my job is just finding things for my students to enter, finding outlets for them. So in Jamaica, it is a straight financial barrier. In the U.S., it is a problem of agency a lot of the time. And in Canada now, it's a matter of finding and connecting the students to the resources. I found when I've talked to some educators here in the States that teach at HBCUs, it's kind of a combination of those things that you mentioned. Like if they're teaching at HBCUs, it's often like the lack of funds and resources as well as the agency, sort of depending on, you know, like what program it is or how many people are in the department and such. So it's interesting how the problems kind of scale based on not just country, but also just where you're teaching and the students that you're teaching, the type of students you're teaching. That's correct. The agency is a rather complicated problem because it's not an individual problem. You can't really solve it by one student. You kind of have to get the whole class to want to do well. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the individual will do well within that. So you have to set the expectation and then you have to, in a way, make it known that what they're doing is hard and it's supposed to be hard and see if you can get them on board for the difficulty. <laughs> it's yeah. a, a really delicate dance. But the U.S., that was the problem I faced. And hopefully I rose to the challenge and I apologize to the students <laughs> if I had not. Do your students take you up on office hours? Yes, they do. Because drawing is a bit like singing, where it's your voice, with drawing, it's your hand, mm -hmm. it feels, and you know, it's your art, it's what you are trying to say. A lot of the things that I give in class, it feels like I'm attacking them personally. So they take up the office hours to tell me that I should <laughs> have attacked them personally. <laughs> and then, you know, we have sessions to show them, no, it's not like you, yeah. it's understanding of the subject matter that we're doing is not quite there yet. This is what you're doing. You're over here. I need you to get to here. Mm -hmm. An example of that would be I'm teaching measuring things, just measuring. And I'm, I say you draw a line, a straight line, a perfectly vertical line, and then you measure every other angle from that. If I say picture a 90 degree angle, you have that in your head. Mm -hmm. If you cut that in half, you have a 45-degree angle. So if you're looking at a line, you can guess what that angle is because you know what 90 is and you know what 45 is. So if it's below 45, you can say, oh, that's about 30, etc. And what students do, they don't do that. They just guess. <laughs> just put it down. It looks right. And they come to office hours and say, hey, you were picking on me. <laughs> and I said, I knew you guessed. <laughs> because you immediately put down something before attempting, before I even finished the sentence. Mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, they take up office hours. They get extra time at the beginning. Now, at the advanced level, when they're about to graduate, they want to know if there's a gallery showing, which ones I should contact. Is there's, if there's an art festival, how do I get in? What do I do now? I'm about to be out there. What do I do now? And I have a whole packet for them. Have you know what's the steps that they take? What are the expectations? You know, I have a, a breakout spreadsheet. Rent is fifteen hundred. If you sell for five hundred, you need to sell three every month. 
you need to contact 10 people every month as a result. It's 30 days in a month. If you do one every other day, you'll get to 10. Three of them might buy. And you, if you do this over a year, you won't run out of money. That's what my office hours are for. Yeah, back when I was teaching, and this was, oh my goodness, this might have been over 10 years ago. I mean, I started off teaching in person, and then I asked to be moved to teach online because my students were wearing me out. Like, (laughs) I mean, one, I was, well, my students were all older than me. And so a lot of them kind of tried to think that they would like punk me because they're like, you know, you're my son's age. And I'm like, so? Like, (laughs) I will fail you if you don't get these assignments right. Or they'd ask me to like, some of them would ask me to like, they would bring their kids to class and like, they would try to use office hours as like babysitting. Like they would have their kid come to office hours and I'm like, where's your mom? And they're like, I don't know. What what, what am I supposed to do? I'm not running daycare over here. And I asked to be moved online because I was like, I can't keep coming out here and and fooling with y'all doing this stuff. And online is is just different because the students just have to have more discipline. And I mean, again, this was... 10 years ago, you know, pre-pandemic now where I think everyone's kind of used to doing virtual work. I mean, just trying to get them to have the discipline to just say something in the forum, just, you know, participate in class because there was like a participation element to their grade. And, and then when they have office hours, it's just like, well, what can I do to make up for the time that I wasn't speaking? I'm like, you can't, like, you can't make up participation. There's no extra credit. <laughs> For participation, you didn't speak up. That was it, you know, like trying to do anything they could just to pass. I would have students that would try to justify why they thought it was okay cheating because the class was online. And if the class wasn't online and Wikipedia wasn't there, then why would it be available as a resource? Like just they're very creative. Like I was teaching. a, It was basically like principles of web development to business students which was probably the why they were so duplicitous because it wasn't design students. They were business majors that just needed a credit. So mm. they didn't really care to learn. They were just like, what can I do to get past you, essentially? Mm. And it would be just so disheartening because I would have students that would fail my class two and three times coming back doing the same stuff. And it's like, do you want me to just pass you out of pity? Because yeah, yeah. it's getting there. Like, it's hurting me to see you doing the same stuff. Like the assignment has not changed from semester to semester. I would think you would be better at it because you've done it before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh... I do miss teaching though. I just don't miss all of that. Yeah. I don't miss all of that. <laughs> so some people you're not going to get. Yeah. If, you know, when you are in, what is it? The lower school levels, mm-hmm. you know, everybody and everybody's decent but as soon as you go to high school and your high school has like 2,000 people you know at least one or two crazy people just absolute (laughs) (laughs) you see them you cross the street right in teaching some people it might be they might not make it (laughs) it might be that they for whatever reason Mm -hmm. their motivation they're unwilling to do the work and that's fine (laughs) Yeah, I do my absolute best to not take it in any way personal. I try to with I actually take it as a point of pride to produce the same professionalism, no matter what the student comes with. And I treat them extra, extra nice just to make the 
D or the E that they're about to get a bit more palatable. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> Wait, you said D or E? Listen, there's there's no time machine. You're going to fail this class. It's over for you. <laughs> wait, wait. There's a grade that's an E? There's an F. It's, oh, okay. A, it exists, but I explain in great detail the grades that are coming, and I explain the connection, and I try and point out what they can do next time, provided oh. they take it again. Yeah. And I make it really long, and it takes a long time for me to do it. So when they come back the next time... I say, I remember that long list I sent mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you haven't done it. You showed up when there was three weeks remaining in the semester, and you were asking me to perform a miracle. Right. But I am merely a teacher. I am not the Lord. I cannot <laughs> turn water into wine. I'm sorry. I can't make time <laughs> return itself. So right. If you plan on making it, you have to come to a certain number of them to get participation. So a lot of it is merely treating, giving people the benefit of the doubt that they'll try again and not taking it personally. And I'm going to be honest, it's been really difficult. I can imagine. I can (laughs) imagine. Very, very difficult. But again, systematize. I've seen it before now. I'm actually mad if it bothers me at all when I see it the second time. I always think, you've seen this before. You really, you really <laughs> angry about this. You see, it's not the first person that has come in yeah. three weeks before. Mm-hmm. Go look for the three weeks before folder, search through your computer. Oh, here it is. Oh, yeah, this is what I said. Oh, got it. And then I go and set out the, the templates. And that way, again, because in the U.S., agency was the problem. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to preserve the idea that this person felt like what I was teaching was theirs. Yeah. And so I would try and be excruciatingly kind, the kind of <laughs> understanding. No, you're still going to fail, but it's an understanding. <laughs> fail. It's with love. It's with kindness. It's with accountability. And I think, I mean, if the students have changed me in any way, I've become way more understanding and way more empathetic still gonna fail you though but (laughs) way more empathetic yeah i get it you know sometimes i know students are going through a lot and you try to do as much as you can you want to get them to the level where they hopefully are understanding and doing it for themselves and then sometimes you just you just don't you just don't have that but i think as educators you and i both kind of realize that that's just it comes with the territory unfortunately yes yeah (laughs) Let's kind of switch gears here a little bit and talk more about you. I think as folks can probably tell by now with the quiet storm voice that you're from Jamaica. Tell me what it was like growing up there. It was, so I'm from uh, Port Antonio in Jamaica, a place called Bound Brook, which is near the town of Port Antonio. It's essentially on the, yeah, it's called Stony Hill. It's, as the name suggests, there are stones, it's a hill. There is um, <laughs> not forests. There are trees, lots of them. There are, you know, dogs wandering on your properties. That's your dog now. My neighbors knew all of my business. Mm-hmm. It's a small place and it's my parents, man, they did a great job. <laughs> they did what they were supposed to do. And as a result, I felt like I could not only was I supposed to do well in school, but it was like, yeah, when I pass any exams and I come home 
with some kind of a good report. Like, All right, that's nice. <laughs> but mm-hmm. we were expecting this. And that environment, I think, is what I credit for my trying so hard <laughs> at anything. Going up there, it was, you know, our national heroes are all black people. It's all every teacher I ever had was a woman. The prime minister was a woman at the time. So when I came to the U.S. and the term African-American or black had anything negative attached to it, I was very, very surprised, to say the least, Mm. because we don't really have any negative connotations towards a black identity in Jamaica at all. When I was growing up, things may have changed. (laughs) But when (laughs) I was growing up, we didn't. So I come to the U.S. and I, oh, you know, in Jamaica, you're a man and you come to the U.S., you're a black man. What does that mean? And my work is a direct result of trying to answer that question. Exactly. What does that mean exactly? And the answer for me was to expand what I think black identity is, to expand what identity is in general. And to do that, I make a whole bunch of paintings that refer to my identity on the one hand, but also does so in a more abstract way. So I make a whole bunch of paintings that are kind of abstract, but they're kind of real. And I'm Mm -hmm. trying to say identity is kind of abstract and also kind of real. When did you first get into art and painting? Ah, so that is a great, good question. In Jamaica, we have, when we leave school, they're called Caribbean Examination Council exams. Everything is exam-based. And I took art in these exams and I got just eh, a little below the best. So I was into art in high school. As a profession, absolutely not. That's not in the tables. That's not a thing. It was at my university. I met my painting professor. Her name was Tula Telfair. She was born in Gabon. She had long hair. She wore Prada dresses. I, I, didn't, I don't know if it was Prada dresses. I just know these dresses were expensive. And she got oil paint on them and it didn't bother her. And she drove an Audi, a blue one that sounded like a hairdryer. <laughs> and she could paint quite a bit. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, I understand being a professor pays, but you're not buying an Audi from professor money. We don't mm-hmm. have. <laughs> and I, I actually asked her, I got up the courage, hey, man, what, what, <laughs> how do you sell these paintings? How does this work? And she's like, well, you have to get very, very good and go take the classes you need. And we can talk about it when you get into the class. And I did. I, I took the classes that was needed and while I was painting with her she just treated me and all the other students as if we were already professionals she would now (laughs) to many people she was me (laughs) (laughs) but it's a very specific thing where she wants you to be ready as soon as you step out she wants you to be already ready Mm-hmm. And so she would come into the studio and say, you know, if she were a curator and she gave me a show, she'd take it back immediately. I need to be painting way more than this. And then just leave, <laughs> leave me to contemplate what she just said. <laughs> she would come in and just really treat me like, like an equal, to be mm-hmm. honest. Treat me like, look, when you graduate, nobody, can, <laughs> no, this is not fun and games. You really need to be making the work consistently and professionally. And somewhere along the line, 
it just happened that I felt like I was a professional. It was very gradual, but as it, you know, a few well-placed curse words got it into my head <laughs> <laughs> that one should be a professional, treated you would like any other job. It was really in college. So let's get back more into you, into your background. So was your family really supportive of you getting into art? That is such an interesting question. Supportive is a strong, strong word. So <laughs> my father is an EMT. And okay. before that, he was a fireman. He's out here saving lives. My mom was the secretary to not the, the to the dean of a college in Jamaica. So this serious working people. And they send their son to America. Definitely not to paint. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm there. Initially, I was doing physics and it went okay. But I decided, okay, this, if I attack the painting with the same consistency I was doing physics, I might be able to make it work. And I, behind their back, just major in art. Don't tell nobody. (laughs) Get down to business and it's time to graduate now. And I call them up and I go, hey, the graduation is nice, but you know, it's me and 700 people. Nobody cares. Why don't you come to this thing I'm having called an exhibition? And they came and I made some sales, but I told the people, could you wait and give me the money in the exhibition so that my parents could see that I'm out here making that <laughs> And they did. And they've been supportive ever since. <laughs> so they've been supportive of me as a person, but because I hid it initially from them as an artist after I graduated, they were on board. And they have the ordinary fears. All parents are afraid that their children will perpetually depend on them mm-hmm. until they're 60. <laughs> parents live like, when are you going to grow up? And once I demonstrated that, I got this, I'm fine. Then they were very happy. Then it was like, all right, relax, mom. You don't have to tell this lady that's yeah. doing your nails. <laughs> <laughs> listening your parents are afraid you are going to be broke avoid it at all costs and you will be supported and then you'll have the problem of having them telling them to relax on the support a little bit what made you decide to go to wesleyan for school yeah so i got into medical school in jamaica got into the university of the west indies i'm 17 years old applying to things my dad's an emt so I saw those medical books and my dad has been going on ambulances, picking people up. So I was fairly familiar with what medicine actually means. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I thought to myself at 17 years old, nah, can't do that. And I was in this program for, I don't want to say gifted, it was the Association of Quietly Excellent Scholars and Thinkers. A-Quest was the name of it. Just a group of people who met And they said, you know, apply to some colleges in the U.S. They give scholarships and I applied to a few and a few said yes. And I picked Wesleyan because it gave the most. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I went blindly with not very much information. These are the days of, of course, paper applications and paying for Internet at Internet cafes for half an hour at a time. 
So the kinds of research that people do today, not possible. The virtual yeah. tours and the flying in and doing that, that's not a thing. It's you see a name, all right, it's in Connecticut. How far is that from, how, how much of a flight is that? Okay, all right, apply, see what happens. And what happened was they called me and said, hey, you've been accepted. And I go, great. What does that mean? <laughs> you're going to get a visa and come and you live here before. Oh, all right. Yeah, it, it was more of I need to get an education and medicine at 17, at 18 is rough. That choice is a diff- was too difficult. So let me go to a liberal arts school and figure out another path. And what was that path? Of course, I mean, it was art, but, you know, yeah, tell me in, about that. Initially, it was physics. I, you know, I was enamored with, in general, I really like excellence of any kind, but I really was into all of the great physicists, Faraday and Einstein and Niels Bohr. I read these people's biography. I loved a mathematician, Riemann's hypothesis. I was reading that. I was just in the library reading up about people who with their mind, <laughs> with their head, they were doing things. And yeah. that kind of a thing was impressive to me because I'm nearsighted. So physical feats, they were impressive, but they were hard. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't, I wasn't going to catch anybody. Got glasses and sorted that out. But what really wowed me was, you know, sitting into the library and reading, wait a minute, this guy Newton came up with the theory of gravity and figure out white light is made up of all the other colors and invented calculus and then he turned 26 nah i need to whatever he's doing i need to have some of this so these people were what were impressive people to me and then i went to college and i found out what professional physics was Mm. which is you write some code and you run a model and then you refine the code and then you run the model If you are a professor and you're at the end, if you can manage a tenured position, you have grad student, write parts of the code and run the model. (laughs) It's not this romantic notion of sitting down and solving the kinds of universal questions I was hoping for. It was more of, can you learn to code? And can you learn the math? And can you learn the math to tell it to code? And so I figured that out. Around my second year, when it was time to decide a major, and I was doing some drawing, and I said, I've actually flipped a coin, flipped it, heads, I stay with physics, tails, I go with heart, (laughs) it was tails. (laughs) I then went, this can't be real. So I went online and I took a random question answer generator, and it ended up with art as well. I said, all right, I'll go with art. (laughs) What? That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> you left, just left it up to chance, huh? Left it up. Because again, I figured, let me put it in perspective. Okay. There was a guy in my classroom. His name is Zin Lin. He was from Burma. He skipped both levels of calculus and multivariable calculus and was the TA of the physics class while he was taking it. And there was five Zinlins in my class of like 20 people. Mm -hmm. And there are people who they've been doing physics so long. They are as good at physics as Mozart is as good at music. These people are good, good. 
You're not going to catch him in your lifetime. And I was working an extreme amount just to, I mean, I would get 92 and that would be a B because somebody got 108 and the A was moved up to 108%. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's this kind of environment where the effort I'm putting in, I'm thinking, if I apply this work ethic to basket weaving, I'm going to have some amazing baskets. <laughs> so then I could allow chance to, to, and again, I was already doing, it's not a random pick. It was something that I was already doing. I was taking languages and I'm doing art at the same time, art and art history, mm-hmm. all at the same time. And I figure if I threw myself at this art, the way I'm doing at physics, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be cool. And that's why I was comfortable leaving up to chance. For those listening, that's not wise. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. If you already have an arena of proven work ethic, go for it. But if not, then put some more thought. So you're attending Wesleyan. you're, You're majoring in art. And you graduated. After you graduated, you ended up going back to Jamaica for a while, and then you ended up coming back to the States. Tell me about that time. I graduated, and I just couldn't come up with the money to move to New York, so I stayed nearby the school and worked at a little supermarket, sold paintings, and again, realized, really figured out that I don't have a gallerist, I don't have a curator backing me. I have no critics looking at my work. I'm just a guy out here, (laughs) but I need to eat. Mm -hmm. And so I would, for jobs that I was applying to that were arts related, I would send them what I was working on and just let them know that I painted as well and let them know what it was about very quickly. And many of them would respond and I wouldn't get the job, but they'd buy a painting. Or they'd refer me to somebody else and they would buy a painting. So I figured out pretty early, if you tell people, (laughs) they will buy. Then, of course, my visa expired and I had returned to Jamaica where I was hired as an art teacher at my old high school. Taught 8th, 9th, 10th and 11th grade. And then after that, while I'm in art school, I'm doing the same thing I did just Whenever I had to email somebody or whatever, I met someone and I took their number, I just told them that I painted. And Mm. it worked the same way in the U.S. It worked in Jamaica. Somebody was like, you paint. I never met an artist before. (laughs) So, well, now you have. You do. I'd send them what I've done and I sold paintings and people would pay me in installments. So they pay a little this week and then another bit next week in Jamaica. And that allowed me to save up the money to apply to graduate school. Came to graduate school, did pretty much the same thing, and I've been doing it since. Well, I mean, it seems like you always sort of had your eye on the prize when it when it comes to that, which is good. You didn't, even though you were doing other things like teaching and stuff, you still were like telling yourself and other people, like, I am an artist. Yes, I think around half of the battle is just showing up and making the work and yeah. committing to telling people. Around half, which is seems like an exceptionally large percent. But the thing is, if you continually tell people, you're going to need to show them something that you've told them about, which is going to make you want to continue to paint. And the more you paint, the more you want to tell people. And it's 
starts this virtuous cycle of making something, talking about it. And the more you talk about it, the more you make, the more you make, the more you talk about it. But it's also just sort of keeping that dream in the forefront, right? Like it's not about having whatever the weight of reality or the weight of the world sort of kill that idea for you. You still had it in the front of your mind, like I am an artist, I am an artist. You're telling people you're doing it. I mean, I think that's just a powerful a powerful thing for people to kind of keep in mind as they go through whatever it is they're going through as part of their creative journey. Like keep the dream at the forefront and keep striving towards that. I was raised as a, a rather religious person. Uh-huh. And in the church, they have daily bread, they have daily readings, daily Bible texts. And, you know, as a young child, this is bothersome. <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> is that you are every day <laughs> kind of a thing? And I applied that same concept to my artwork, which is the daily reminders and daily things and yeah. daily, not affirmations, but something entirely dedicated to reminding me that I can probably be better, but also looking back at what I've already done to give myself the permission to just do a little bit more. So I have all around my house, (laughs) I have all kinds of, uh, well, I have paintings that I've made, so I see them every day. But I also have whiteboards here and there, and I'll write a quote that I want to keep repeating. And Mm -hmm. one of them, the most recent one I've written, is better to light a candle than curse the darkness. I didn't realize that that's where that came from until you asked me that question. (laughs) But it's the idea that you have to do something every day to remind, to get yourself to do it, so that inevitably when you don't feel like doing it, You've had 47 days of reminding yourself of the importance of looking back at what you've done so much, mm-hmm. how much you've done so far. And you eventually will just keep making stuff just because you're in the habit of reminding yourself. The same with exercise. I haven't really missed a workout in years. And when I have to miss one, I feel it because I just, when I get up, I exercise. I don't even think about it. I get up, I exercise them's the rules the same i get up exercise and before i leave i have to see this thing that i wrote down with my hand i'm surrounded by paintings that i like so it's a constant reminder i think that's really key when you're pursuing something that is a creative risk to constantly and regularly remind yourself and encourage yourself because outside is not going to do it there is no reassurance coming you have to provide it for yourself. Let's get more into your your particular art style and your process. I mean, based on what I can see from your website, I feel like after you came back to the States from Jamaica, this is when you really started to kind of come into your own as an artist, not just in words, but in deeds as well by the actual paintings that you've created. Tell me about your process. Like what inspires you to make the art that you do in this fashion? Yeah, so the the main inspiration was the difference of being a, a, a black man from Jamaica to the U.S. and trying to work out what identity means and trying to make something that says it's a little bit more complicated than you think. And what changed in graduate school was I more clearly could articulate 
what the art was supposed to do. And I could use better metaphors. I could talk about it better is really what changed. And talking about it better is a function of thinking about it better and more clearly. So the change I want to make was I want someone to look at whatever identity they occupy as something that's within their control. That sentence took two years of making artwork that I didn't like (laughs) to figure out. It took two years of trial and error and critiques in graduate school. And once you have a clear direction, then I choose from the tools that are available to me. Oil paint, I can paint really realistically, or I can paint really abstractly, or I can use technology to manipulate how an audience interacts with that artwork. And I make series of paintings that are somewhere between really abstract or close to realistic to walk people painting by painting through the idea that your identity can also be, it's sure, it can be tangible, it can be reified, it can be reaffirmed, but it's also changeable by you. So what changed in graduate school was I refined the message a lot more. And now you have a connection with one of our other guests on the show, Benny F. Johnson. He's the executive director uh, currently of AIGA. How did you two connect? I, after I graduated, but before I graduated, a parent of one of the students graduating was walking by the cafeteria and they had some paintings of mine in there. And she Googled me and contacted me and said, hey, I'm in the art business. I'd like to have a conversation. And we had that conversation and she introduced me to Benny. And we went down to D.C. and I painted Benny and his wife and hung out with his kids. Wow, those kids must be grown by now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) He was a really little boy and a really little girl, but now they must be big. Yeah, I made two paintings of him and his wife. And I actually painted their face with face paint with the kids. (laughs) But the kids are just rough with the face paint. Uh Stabbing daddy with the paintbrush. Uh, like, you have to be gentle, just paint a little bit at a time. <laughs> and, you know, just attacking his face. And same, his wife, Akira, I believe is her name. Good Kira, painting her as well. I painted them both. I painted a pair of paintings and I delivered it. And I believe it's still in their home to this day. It was a lovely experience. And I thank them for trusting me to do that. He texted me the photos. They're really something. I mean, I know the photos don't do justice to your work, but they're they're really striking. Again, remember, I'm from Jamaica. I'm from this hill in mm-hmm. Jamaica. Stone so Hill. Washington, yeah, Stony Hill. Washington, <laughs> D.C. is may as well be Mars. It may as well be, you know, a, a different planet. This is a place where people work in the government and people talk about the capital. <laughs> and people are like, you know, the president's going to be White House is down there. This is an and This is, you know, professional. So he's driving around and telling me about all this and my world is expanding and I thank him quite a lot for that just telling me about the history of the place and the residents that were there and the kinds of just work that people do (laughs) actually Benny wanted me to ask you a question when I talked with him I told him I was interviewing you he's like oh yeah you know he texted me the photos Benny wanted me to ask you about how you use the black figure and abstraction in your work? Ah, yes. So 
So when I came to college in 2008, around uh, eight, nine-ish was when Occupy Wall Street happened. And it was activist-y, activist town, activist everything. And then by the time, so I arrived in the United States in 2014. And if I remember correctly, that was when one of the first big public police shootings happened. It was just bam. Like I stepped out of the airport and then the shooting happened. So it was like on TV and it was very much in the air, the making of work that was overtly describing the black experience as well as it is lived by many in the United States. And Mm -hmm. I said to myself, you know, they don't need any more negative portrayals of black people. I understand. I get it fully what's happening, but I think what's his name? Have you, you, do you know the book between the world and me? Mm-hmm. Tana Hesse you know, Coates. Tana yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If I'm a writer, he got it. He nailed it. He got it. I don't need to write another one like that. I think he has it. And this, I said the same with my paintings. I think when I look through what's being made right now, I think they got it. I don't think if I say something, it will be nearly as impactful as if I really focus on this idea of agency, of mutability, of aspiration. And I think now more than ever (laughs) is when it's needed. So I don't have never say never, but for the most part, I look at the black figure. I want when I'm an old man and my memory is going in the art history books, they see images of representation that are complex, that are layered, that are nuanced, that are not only in relationship to whiteness, that are exploring the same way every other artist gets to explore. And so that's how I use the, the black figure. Complicated. Take its place like everybody else. Masks are kind of a a regular theme in a lot of your work. Tell me about that. Yeah, so masks are a metaphor that I return to. And masks in the Caribbean. So uh, in Toronto, they recently had this uh, big carnival called Caribana. It's where one gets to put on a mask and put on a costume and go outside and essentially simulate sex through dancing, (laughs) essentially, (laughs) to a beat. And that's only acceptable if you're wearing this costume. You kind of can't just do this at your day job. Mm -hmm. You can't pull up to to accounts receivable and start doing this kind of behavior. And I use and I think about masks in that way. It allows you to occupy an identity that gives you privileges, that gives you the ability to act in a way that you ordinarily wouldn't. And you don't have to keep it forever. You can change it. And so masks as a notion of identity is, look, of course, you are who you are. You're born where you're born. But if when it comes to making art, if you view all of it as yours and like you're supposed to be there, suddenly where you take influence from is much wider. If you view that the creative production is for you, then 
you know, telling people about it is not that big a deal. <laughs> then a lot of work. If you think that you are supposed to be passing this class, that your identity is, yeah, pass classes, then chances are you're going to work to pass that class. So masks are this wonderful metaphor that I keep going back to. I keep finding nuances. Masks can conceal things. You can put it on. You can rob somebody. You can get away with it. Masks can reveal things. You can wear a mask for ritual purposes to act in ways to enter into states like trances, to enter into states like, well, like carnival, etc. And masks with the pandemic went from being something to protect other people from getting infected with COVID to protecting yourself to being like a status symbol <laughs> to the meaning of it changed over time. So I've been fascinated by this concept of masks. Mm. Now you talked earlier about this exhibition that you had recently. How did it go? Like, tell me about it. It went okay. What I did was I rented a gallery and just paid them the rent for a week and told as many people as I could about it. And people came and purchased the work. <laughs> it was <laughs> undertaking because when you pay for the gallery, you, you kind of have to do everything. You have to show up and hang the work and sweep out the gallery and paint the wall and nail in the, the, the painting onto the wall and set up the lights. But from a introducing Toronto to my work perspective, it went swimmingly because nice. one does it's, you know, I can show you better than I can tell you. So it was a matter of inviting people. Many of them were new to Toronto and I sell my art mostly to people who have never really bought art before. So it was a great success in that way. I got many, many people who didn't even think of themselves as people who buy artwork to buy art and to think about it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm glad that it was really successful for you in that way. Thank you. Thank you. Are you planning on doing like another exhibition like this year or I'm sure in the future you're planning on doing some? In the future, yes. So my time for the next couple months is taken up with the, the book and with I'm going to be the coordinator of the program I'm teaching at Centennial. So it's a lot of emails and a lot of um, tours and a lot of interviews, <laughs> etc. cetera, is mm -hmm. coming up. But next year, I'm planning to, I'll be painting the whole time. Next year, I'll have anywhere from five to 10 exhibitions that I'm, I'm putting into the calendar. But I'm going to be producing the work to get that done now. So next year, 2023, by January, the book will be out. By March, I'll have at least one exhibition by June, I'll have another. By July, I'll have another. By August, I'll have another. And if my papers are right, I might have one or two in Jamaica as well. Oh, you got a plan. That's good. Yeah, I have a plan, but, you know, saying, you know, man makes plans, God laughs, because COVID really... <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's that's true. That's true. <laughs> Here, there's a whole monkeypox coming on the scene. Like, yeah. We can't, we can't get a break in this century. <laughs> what is it that you ultimately want to convey with your work? Yeah, ultimately, I want people to see art as something that is for everybody. And I want them to see it as a decent job. Now, will you get rich doing it? Probably not. That being said, will you get rich doing 
anything? Probably not. <laughs> it's not more difficult than anything else. I want people with looking at my work to understand and think through their identity as something that they get to pick. I want to overall increase agency in the world, increase not just confidence, but the idea of possibility. The, my largest challenge with is getting students to not just believe that they can do what I'm asking, but that they're supposed to do what I'm asking and they're supposed to do it well. So if you look at identity, there is, I think, Ben Akerlof, he's an economist, and he says identity is one of the most significant economic decisions that someone can make. That means when you pick your identity, you pick what clothes you're going to buy, you pick what kind of shoes you wear, what colleges you can get into, what kind of person you can marry, what neighborhood you're going to live. And I want people, after having consumed my work, see the significance of those decisions and see that they have much more agency over them. They have way more power. When you look back at your younger self, like let's say your your 16-year-old self, when you look back at him, what advice would you give him? Oh, man, <laughs> that's such a really good question. <laughs> at 16 years old, I was honestly not listening to nobody. <laughs> <laughs> You weren't going to tell me I'm not going to be pretty good at physics. You weren't going to tell me I'm not going to be pretty good at anything. At 16 years old, I, well, I would actually say go to the dance is what I would say. So hmm. when I was in college, they had these things called winter dances. And I was a member of the ASA, African Student Association, and they had a dance. And every, every year they would ask me, just come practice for the dance and do it on the night. And I would go, nah, I have to paint. I have this problem set to do. And I never did the dance. I never did the dances. Because, again, undergraduate was so hard. I never did them. And it was in graduate school, I realized how much I missed by not doing the dance. How much outside of class relationships I could have formed if I did the dance. If I just went to the thing and practiced and you know, maybe gotten 98 instead of 100, <laughs> you still get an A. <laughs> I realized at that time, because when I started selling paintings, I realized the need and the importance of human relationships. That's most of life. Life is group work, is what life is. Mm -hmm. And I realized, I would tell my 16-year-old self, hey, just go to the dance. Don't, you don't, sure, be focused, but you don't have to be all that focused. Go to the dance, you'll have a good time, you'll form human connections, and when they need help, you're going to be able to help them. And when you need help, they're going to be able to help you. But go to the dance, is what I would say. At this stage of where you're at in your career as a, as a painter, as an educator, now as an author, how do you define success? Ah, uh, yes. My, I was talking to somebody earlier about this concept. I woke up when I was 26 years old and I realized that I had all that I wanted. I wanted to be a painter and that's what I 
that's what I did most of the time, most of my days. I was I applied for a professor job and I was working as a professor at 26. So success for me was spending my time doing and utilizing God's gifts as they have been bestowed to me. And I can learn pretty quickly and I can teach fairly well and I can paint and I do all of these with most of my time. So success is doing uh, or using the gifts that you have for most of your time. It doesn't have to be all the time now. We all have to pay taxes and commute to work most of the time. And for me, I have, I have all I want. Mm-hmm. Given that, and you sort of, I guess, already teased this out a little bit, but where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, what kind of work do you want to be doing? Any sort of like bigger projects or anything like that? Whenever I run into any new medium, I try and figure it out and do a project in that medium. So now I'm looking into AR. So Instagram filters and Snapchat filters, provided Snapchat is still alive as a company. Those are the kinds of AR that everyone would be familiar with, the augmented reality is what AR stands for. And I'm thinking that this can be a really strong addition to my work. And I'm thinking, if I can figure this out, if I can learn that small bit of code. So I'm taking a class here and there. So in four or five years, I will have two, three projects tying technology and the art that I'm doing. And I also... When I moved in Quebec, all of my friends were concept artists and they worked in the entertainment industry, designing monsters, trying to tell stories. And a part of my job now as a professor is I found myself helping people become illustrators and helping them learn to design those monsters. And as such, I'm looking at and watching much more stories. So there might be some short films in the mix. There might be some form of narrative in the mix. Hmm. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more information about you and about your work and everything online? You can find me at kamarthomas.com or you can find me on Instagram at O-H-K-A-M-A-R. As mentioned earlier, I was sort of... uh, flowery languaged young man and i got the the, the sentence oh kamar quite a bit so i made that <laughs> my instagram handle <laughs> you can find me at those two places primarily or if you type my name kamar thomas into google i am proud to say you will find me sounds good well kamar thomas i want to thank you so much for for coming on the show one i think just like your your energy like you really just come across as very self-assured and cool as well as artistic but i think also just telling your story of you know coming from jamaica and always kind of putting your artwork and the work that you're doing and who you are as an artist at the forefront as you went through life i think is one it's it's granted you the success that you have now but i think it's just a really great example to set for others out there that can hopefully do the same thing so thank you so much for coming on the show i appreciate it Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a privilege and an honor. (laughs) Big, big thanks to Kamar Thomas. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Kamar and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about Revision Path as a whole? You know, I mentioned this at the end of every episode, but we really, really would love to hear from you. We're on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Reach out to us. Leave a comment. Send us a tweet. Just search for Revision Path, like all one word. Oh, and to really, really get our attention, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. A five-star review? Don't leave a one-star review and be like, ha-ha, don't, don't do joke reviews no one likes the joke reviews give a five-star review and I'll, I'll mention it right here on the show if you do that you know the more people that you tell about the show the bigger we become and the further we can extend our reach to talk to black designers developers artists and other digital creatives from all over the world as always thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time <music>